someone that ran the playground and the halls of our school. And one day I decided that I had had enough. And I would be the one that steps up and put an end to the tyranny and oppression of the fifth grade bully. (laughs) And so there in the hallway of my fifth grade elementary school, I stepped up. And and thankfully, I had just seen a movie, Rocky III. And there's this line in the second fight with Clubber Lang where Rocky's getting beat down and he steps up and he says, you ain't so bad, you ain't so bad, you ain't nothing. I decided that was going to be my line. (laughs) And so I step up and I looked at her. (laughs) Forgot to tell you that part, didn't I? I looked at her and I said, you ain't so bad, you ain't nothing. And I got to tell you, I wasn't quite prepared for the response I got. Because she pushed me. And I stepped back, and when I stepped back, my friend stepped in my place. And they started wrestling in the hall. And so we get stopped and the three of us get sent to the office. The two of them, angry, red in the face, and me in tears. Because to get to the office, I had to walk past my mother's classroom. And I knew going past my mother's classroom, I would be seen, and the news would definitely make it home to my dad. See, here's my assumption that at some point you have had to deal with a difficult person. Everyone has dealt with someone difficult. Everyone has dealt with someone difficult. And if you have not, I have some bad news for you. I'll just go ahead and let you figure out what the bad news is. But all of us have had to deal with someone who is difficult. And the bottom line is relationships are difficult. Two people getting along, existing together, sometimes comes easy, but sometimes it's hard. So, sometimes it's not what we want to do. And I think back to school and how many times you sit there in class and there's the difficult relationships. But they don't stop there. Like That was one of the things I always thought in school. Was when I get done with school, then the relationship side will get so much easier. And the truth is it doesn't. It gets more complicated. Because there's more things that you have to deal with, and there's work, and there's um, your neighborhood, the place that you live, and there's all these things that affect that relationship. And we think we know the way to solve that problem, the difficult people problem. We think we know the answer, and it's pretty simple. 
But what I want to share with you this morning is the answer is not what you think it is. Like we have in our mind, well, here's, here's the way to get through the problem. Here's the way for it to get better. And the answer is not what you assume. But we'll get to that in just a minute. John is near the end of his life. Not this John over here. Um, John, who wrote the gospel and wrote three letters to the church in Ephesus. He's near the end of his life, and he is trying the best he can to shepherd and pastor these people who are trying to live out the calling of Jesus in their life. And he writes this letter, the third one, addressed to a friend named Gaius. And he begins his letter this way, To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. He begins this letter with this prayer that his spiritual health would match his physical health. And I I think about that. Is that something you would want someone else to pray about you? You hope and pray that your spiritual life would match your physical health. Because for some of us, that might be a pretty scary prayer. We we wouldn't want someone to pray that prayer about us or for us. And that's what John is petitioning God and saying, God, I pray that his physical health would be a mirror image of his spiritual health. And he goes on to affirm and encourage his ministry and what he is doing for Jesus. And he tells him that I I keep seeing and I keep hearing all these things that you're doing for the church of Christ. And I'm so thankful and I'm so glad to hear that my children are leading this life. That they're a part of the church, that they're a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. I'm so thankful to hear that. And then he goes on in this letter to talk about a couple of individuals. To talk about a couple of individuals. The first is named Diotrephes. And I want you to listen to what he says, verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who wants to do so and puts them out of the church. So there are these itinerant preachers, these missionaries that are traveling around, and there's this man in the church who refuses to welcome them, and he's spreading these malicious rumors. And John's writing this letter to his friend Gaius, and he says, when I show up, I'm going to have to confront him. 
He's dealing with a difficult person. And, And more so, he's dealing with a difficult person within the church. And the question of, well, how do you handle this? How do you deal with difficult people? Because everyone has dealt with someone difficult. How do you handle those relationships? How do you navigate them? How do you share life with people who don't see eye to eye with you? What what does this relationship look like? And so here's his response. Dear friend, this is what John says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is not from God. Excuse me, let me, let me repeat that, sorry. I circled it in my Bible and I kind of covered up a word. <laughs> Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. Go back to verse 11 for me, Parker. He says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil. So there's this guy in the church, and he's spreading these malicious lies about John and about ministry. And he's not welcoming people. He's being inhospitable. And his response is, don't respond to evil with evil. See, there's this tendency within us when someone does something to us or someone says something about us to respond the way they treated us. And John's message is don't do that. Don't respond to the evil that he is doing with evil. But instead, respond with good. And then he goes on to say, well, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. But John's written about this on several other occasions, and he said that no one has seen God. Just a chapter, well, I'm sorry, a a couple letters earlier, in chapter 4 of of 1 John, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Here's what love looks like. God took his son and he sent him into our world the perfect sinless God. And he sent him into our sinful and broken world. And he did that, he says, 
He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God. We talk about that a whole lot. We love God and we want to talk about our love for God. But that he loved us and sent his son is an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That, that God loved you, and he said, I'm going to send my son to take your place. He, he sent his perfect son into this sinful and broken world to take your place, to become sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, to become an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. See, there are these two fundamental questions that we are forced to ask when we come to the cross. And the first one is pretty simple. It's, is the cross true? And I think John spends his gospel trying to build the case. And here is what Jesus is doing, and here is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, who died for the sins of the world, and who was raised to give life. And then he turns in his letters to a more important question, I think. If the cross is true, then what does it mean? If the cross is true, if Jesus died, was buried, was raised again, then what does it mean for someone who says, yes, I follow Messiah? What does it do in your life, and what does it change, and what does it transform you into is maybe the bigger question. Because the first question, is the cross true? You get to the answer, but that's not the end of the road. You can say, yes, it's true, but then if it's true, then what does it mean for me? What does it mean to follow a crucified God? What does it mean to follow a God who laid down, willingly laid down his life for this world? What does that mean? One of the leading causes of fires in homes in our country is faulty wiring. When, when we bought our first home, we bought a home and actually, before, actually, right before we got married, um, bought a home, and we moved in and had the inspection done, and the first thing the inspector said is, you've got to do something about the wiring. Our house was built in the 60s, and it really wasn't built to handle all of the technology and all the luxuries that we have today. It wasn't built for dishwashers and microwaves and things that suck so much power and air conditioners. Because all of that was added after the house was built. And he said, you have a huge fire hazard here. 
Because what they had done is they had come in and they had their original panel. They installed another one off of it and ran wires back and forth between the two panels. And they said, you've got to rewire this house or you're going to have a major fire. And so we, we had to pay, it was a lot of money, to have our house rewired and have the electrical reworked so that it was sufficient and would help keep our house safe. And if we didn't do that, they wouldn't insure us. And so we, we pay all this money and go through this process of rewiring the house. And here, here's the deal. All of us come with faulty wiring. See, the way you're wired is not to respond to evil with good. Because when someone does something to you, when someone says something about you, when someone takes something from you, the very last thing you want to do is, well, I'm going to respond with love and kindness. That's not in our nature. And one of the things that John was addressing here in this letter, and I think those two questions, is the cross true? And then two, what does it mean for you? I think they're right here in 1 John 4. The first one, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Is the cross true? If so, you have to decide, will you surrender your life to Christ? And then two, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. See, those two fundamental questions, is the cross true? And then if it is true, what does it mean for you? Because you're going to come to these moments when someone does something to you. Where someone is speaking maliciously about you. Someone is being inhospitable to you. And you are going to be forced to respond. And everything within you, the way that you are wired says, well, I'm going to repay evil with evil. It is simply through a process that happens over years and years and years of following Jesus and surrendering your life to him, day after day after day, that we begin to learn how to respond to the evil with good. It does not come naturally. You have to be rewired. You have to be reworked. And there is a hazard if you don't. If you ever listen to psychologists, they'll tell you that most people have three default responses when they face those difficult times. There's, there's fight, there's flight, and there's freeze. Someone confronts you, someone says something about you, you're either going to fight, you're going to flight, or you're going to freeze. We, we have this way that we're wired. And what we say is, if the cross is true, and if we're going to surrender our life to Jesus, then we're going to allow him to shape and transform us, to rewire us, to remake us in his image, and teach us how to respond in the midst of evil with good. And it is not easy. And I can't tell you how many times I've made this decision that, okay, today I'm going to respond to the evil with good, and I've walked out the door, and the very first time someone confronted me, the first time someone said, I responded in the most unlike Jesus way I could possibly think of. 
and I feel defeated, and I feel angry at myself, and I feel like a failure. But here's the thing. If the cross is true, you get to start over again. That he gives you the grace not just to raise you from the dead, but the grace to lead you to the cross. The grace where you lay down your life and begin to take on his so that he transforms who you are into his image. The temptation will always be to respond to evil with evil. And the cross says, I will respond to evil with love and compassion and mercy and grace. Because the cross of Jesus wasn't just something I entered into to save myself. But the cross of Christ is what I entered into to take on, to pick up, and to carry, and to be made into His image. And in that cross, there is the grace of tomorrow that you get a chance in all your imperfection and all your brokenness to place it on the one who came to give you life and said today today is a new day today is a chance to start over you remember at the start I said the answer to how we respond is not what you think it is. Because I'm guessing that your default is a lot like mine. Well, how do we fix the brokenness of the relationship? Well, them. I mean, how many times have you ever said something like this? If they will change, then I would be okay. And we place all of the blame, we place all of the responsibility on him. Here's the deal. They may never change. They may never realize the way they have treated you is wrong and hurtful. They may never say they are sorry for what they did and for what they took from you. They may never, ever want to make things right. And when you say, well, if they would change, then I will be okay. What happens over time is they who is refusing to change, or are, you know what I mean, um, they begin to consume your heart, and they begin to consume your head. 
And what you are basically doing is making them God over your life and giving them control of what you think and what you feel. And it is the place that does not belong to them. Because if the cross is true, then we've surrendered that to the one who is God. We've surrendered our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and we've focused it on him. And there are these moments that come where our attention goes in different directions and we come back to the one. We, We come back to the one who gave and sacrificed his life for us. See, dealing with a difficult person does not begin with them. It begins with you being transformed and made into the image of Christ. That's the focus of John's letters. If the cross is true, then what does it mean? And the image, the the metaphor he keeps using is walk. Walking in the truth. Following Jesus. Being transformed by his love so that you love like Christ. Saw a story um, last week on the Washington Post, and um, it was about the California condor. Um, I, I would say, by far, the ugliest bird I have ever seen. In the 1980s, they were basically extinct. There were like 16 or 17 left in the entire world. And so the San Diego Zoo began this project where they began capturing them all and they took them in and began breeding them and trying to repopulate them and held them in captivity. And they put some laws in place saying that hunters couldn't use lead bullets because what had basically led to the extinction was hunters would use lead bullets and leave a carcass lying around and the vultures, the condors, would come down to feed on the carcass on this dead, decaying body And they would be filled with this lead that was in the bullets. And it was killing the condors. And so they put these laws into place saying hunters couldn't use lead bullets. And they began repopulating them. And then last year, they re-released them into the wild. Now not on the endangered species list. And I was reading this article... And honestly, my first thought, like looking at this picture was, why in the world would we work so hard to save something so ugly? But do you remember the way that you were wired? We work pretty hard to protect the stuff within us that's pretty ugly. Our greed, our pride, our lust, our desire for revenge. Like we want to hold on to those things. Because to lay them down makes me vulnerable. Because behind them, I feel protected. And I feel safe. And if the cross is true, 
That's part of the me that I'm lying down. That I'm surrendering. That I am allowing to go to the cross. But the the truth is, we are much more comfortable joining ourselves to the resurrection than we are to the cross. But the truth of the matter is you cannot get to resurrection unless you first go to the cross. You don't get to the joy of Sunday without going through the pain of Friday. You don't get to the celebration of Sunday without sitting in the uncertainty of Saturday. That the cross wasn't just about a death and a resurrection. There was this moment in between of what comes next. And it's uncomfortable and it's painful, but it's in those moments that we are transformed. See, my my guess is God has worked in your life transforming who you are more through the deaths that you've gone through and the uncertainties that you've faced than in the resurrections when He's lifted you up. See, the the pain, the uncertainty that we hate to face, it's what transforms who we are. And Jesus doesn't get to a point where there's a resurrection body without first going through the cross. And when he calls you to follow him, one of the things that he says to his disciples is take up your cross and follow me. And it's in those moments where we feel the pain and the rejection of the cross and the uncertainty and the fear of the grave that we get to experience the full joy found in the resurrection. See, God is transforming you. And He's making you into the image of His Son. He's rewiring you. He's remaking you. And it begins with this surrender. If the cross is true, then there's this surrender. That we surrender and we allow Jesus to take our place, to become that atoning sacrifice. But if that's true, it doesn't just simply end with Him taking our place. It begins with Him transforming who we are from the inside out. To enter the water is not just simply to enter into the resurrection. It's also to enter into the death. It's to enter into the grave. It's to enter into the uncertainty of what does tomorrow look like. That's why it's so powerful when, when Paul says that it was God that raised Jesus from the dead. It wasn't Jesus that went into the grave and said, well, you know, I'm just going to wait a couple days. And then I think when he entered into that death, he literally gave up the power to raise himself up, trusting that God would. See, and here's the question. Here's the question for you. Do you truly believe that the one who sent his life to be the atonement for your sin has the same power to raise you from the dead? 
And not just someday off in the future, but right now. Because in life, and here's where those, those difficult people come into play. I think God places people in our life sometimes that help us grow and change and challenge us beyond where we are. To move us further along in this journey. To teach us what it means to be more like Him. So a couple questions for you this morning. For a few of you, is the cross true? Because if it is, it's time to surrender. To give up yourself and be raised into new life. But I think that second question is bigger for most of us, where we are right now today. If the cross is true, what does it mean? And what does it look like to take on the image of a crucified God? To love people in response to their evil. To stick with people in spite of their ignorance. To love and bless those who persecute you. But you don't get there all at once. It's a journey that lasts a lifetime. Father, today, we pray in this place that you are transforming and changing us, molding and shaping our hearts into the image of Jesus, your Son. Father, we thank you for his death and his resurrection, that in it we have life, and that we are given the opportunity to live through him. But Father, we also thank you. And as hard as it is to say, Father, we thank you for the difficult times because we know they're transforming us and shaping us. And Father, we don't want to go back and experience them again, but we know new ones will come. And we pray, Father, that as we're there in the pain and the hurt and the uncertainty, you will be there with us, holding us, transforming us, resurrecting us. And Father, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to give your life to Christ, we offer you that invitation this morning.